Books and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. There is a pop psychology theory about left brain and right brain dominance from the 1980s. Supposedly, those with strong right brains are the analyzers and those with dominant left brains are the artists. In this scenario, it is a rare person who is lucky enough to have both sides of their brain work harmoniously. Their logical and scientific right brain plays nicely with the creative and imaginative left brain. Our guest this week, debut novelist Christina Consolino, would be one of those people. Christina grew up creating stories, but also loved to read biographies of famous female scientists like the first female physicians in the United States, the Blackwell sisters. She loves to read fiction, but decided to make a career in science by pursuing a PhD in physiology and teaching it at the college level. Like a lot of writers, the characters she created in her head wanted to come out, and when they got louder, she knew it was time to embrace the life of a full-time author. Christina's first book, which came out in March, is called Rewrite the Stars. It is the story of a military veteran's PTSD and the havoc it has wrought on his marriage. The reader gets both his version of events as well as those of his estranged wife, Sadie. Christina talks to us about how her experience as an editor gave her confidence to write her own novel, what disease her veteran character originally had instead of PTSD through three drafts until she decided it just didn't serve her story well, and what name she calls her favorite teaching skeleton. Our guest this week is somebody that I actually had the privilege of meeting in person several years ago. It was probably actually more than several. My ability to think in time frames is terrible anymore, but I was able to meet her in person before she had her debut novel, which just released in March. Her name is Christina Consolino, and she lives outside Dayton, Ohio, and we are so glad to have her as a guest this week. Thank you for having me. I'm super happy to be here. So, Christina, tell us a little bit about you. Are you a native Ohioan? Is that the way we we refer to it, Ohioan? But I'm not. I come from Michigan. So, you know, that whole University of Michigan, uh, Ohio State rivalry is high on my list. But um, (laughs) I lived in Michigan for 30 years and I've been here. Well, I don't want to tell you how long I've been here because (laughs) I don't know how old I am. But I've been here a while. I've been pleasantly surprised by Ohio. It's a great Midwestern state that I just didn't really realize existed, to be honest with you. I've been very pleased. So tell us a little bit about your reading life as a kid and then how it changed or maybe it didn't change as you became an adult. Well, probably like many of your guests, I have loved reading. And as a kid, I grew up with a mom who also loved to read, and she had bookshelf after bookshelf after bookshelf. And, you know, it was a little harder to get books then when we were little. You had to go to the library or you had to buy the books. But I read a ton of biographies when I was little, and I gravitated toward women scientists and doctors. So I remember reading Elizabeth Blackwell stories, Florence Nightingale, Marie Curie. Uh, My parents also had a set of the value tales books. I'm not sure if you know what those are, but Mm -mm. 
those Value Tales books, they each had a lesson associated with a, it's almost called them a celebrity, but it was a somebody who was famous. It could have been, you know, Marie Curie. It could have been any of those. So I would read those. They kept me busy. I read and reread them. As I got older, I think I moved into looking at what my mom had in, on her shelves, um, classic literature. She loved Betty Smith. And to this day, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is one of my favorite books. Uh, I also like Madeline Langle, the Bronte sisters, all of those. As I then matured, I kind of opened my eyes to just the whole realm that was out there. And now I am willing to try almost anything. And I write women's fiction, so I tend to read women's fiction. But I love young adult. I love historical fiction. I like to learn from the books that I read. So um, if somebody says, you know, this is a good book to try, I'll go ahead and try it. And if I don't like it, I'll just, you know, put it to the side. I love that one of your favorites is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I did not read that until I was an adult. I feel like there are lots of books I did not read that are, are considered typical children's literature or young adult literature that I didn't read. And that was one, but I read it as an adult and absolutely loved it. The Secret Garden's another one I didn't read till I was an adult. But yeah. The Tree Grows in Brooklyn, you just can't get any better than Francie. Yeah, you really can't. And I, I just a couple months ago, I thought to myself, I should go reread that again. So now that we've had this conversation, I think I will. <laughs> it's funny that you bring up Elizabeth Blackwell, because I'm actually reading The Sisters Blackwell right now or listening mm. to it on an audiobook. And I had never heard of her till recently. Okay. So I think that's really fascinating that you were into female scientists when you were a kid. That's very cool. Yes. Well, you know, on my list of things to become was a physician. I didn't get there, but <laughs> that was by choice. But if I could have had a poster of her, I would have. <laughs> well, speaking of science, your path to becoming a writer is not the straightforward path that people would envision. You have a PhD in physiology and you spent 20 years teaching that, both physiology and anatomy at the college level. So how did fiction writing come into the picture for you? Well, as you can see, science goes really far back. So does writing. And um, I dabbled in writing when I was a kid. I wrote story after story, poem after poem. And I just didn't have the confidence to follow that pathway at some point. I thought when I got to college, I needed to you know, get a degree that was going to not necessarily make a lot of money, but I'd be able to support myself. My mom always said, you know, you never know what's going to happen in life. And you need to be sure that you can be supportive of you and a family if you had to. And so I thought, well, you know, science could probably serve me better in that capacity. And so I just kind of shoved my writing to the side for quite a while until characters started just talking to me. And I finally said, that's it. I need to listen to these characters. And I pulled my writing back out and I, I just sat down and I said, all right, you know what? I need to do something with this. And at that time, even if I had just written stories and put them on the shelves for my children, I would have been good enough. But at some point I thought, you know, I think I'd like to share these with a broader audience. <laughs> so was it the type of thing where you were writing while you were also teaching or did you decide to make a complete career change mid-path? That's a good question. I don't throw the term ADHD around lightly because I don't have it, but I feel like I have to have multiple projects or multiple things going on in my life at one time in order to do each one well. I know that sounds weird because it sounds like I'm trying to multitask and I don't always multitask well, but for me, teaching part-time is what I did, um, would allow me then the time to do some writing and editing. And so that's what I did until about a year and a half ago. I said, you know what, teaching science really isn't where I 
want to be anymore. Um, and my husband said, well, if not, then just do what you need to do. And so I stepped away from that and now I just write and edit. So your debut novel is called Rewrite the Stars and it was published in March, like seven days ago, I think. Yeah, We're recording week. this mm-hmm. on March 25th. <laughs> and so often getting that first book out takes a lot of time, takes a lot of toil. So tell us how the idea for the novel came about and how long did it take to go from the characters talking to getting it published? That's a story lots of people like to hear. And I like to actually answer that question because I feel like so many writers start and then they give up. And I could be the poster person for starting something and not giving up. The novel actually dates back to Father's Day in 2012. That was when the idea came to me. I had a conversation in the grocery store. I ran home and I said, I've got to start this story. And I don't remember how long it took me to get a first draft. And the first draft didn't take that long, but then I revised and revised and revised and revised. And it wasn't until 2017 or 18 when I went to a writer's conference and I was listening to the speaker talk about micro tension and macro tension and how important conflict was in the novel. And I looked at the person next to me and I said, you know, I think this novel I'm working on really needs another big revision. And so I I tackled another one. And that's where I got to rewrite the stars today. So for me, it took a long time. In and about, though, I was teaching at that time. Um, I do have four kids, and my parents now live down here in Ohio with me. So I, I didn't have a full day of writing, I guess is how I would put it. So it took a long time. But in the end, you know, it's worth it. I'm glad it's out there. Yeah. So you mentioned going to a writer's workshop. When you started thinking about writing a novel or writing full-time, are those things that you went to in the beginning to see if it was the right thing for you? Yes. Kind of dipping your toe into it? I guess in 2012, I took a workshopping class. And right from that first workshopping class, I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. This book Of course, that one didn't get anywhere, but um, a book will come from this. And so when I was going to conferences or writing workshops, it was simply to either learn a craft better or get better feedback or, you know, little things that I felt that I needed to pick up to make my work better. I had already committed. I said, this is going to happen. Even if it takes me 40 years, I'm going to get this book finished. The story, Rewrite the Stars, the novel, it concerns a separated but still living together couple, Sadie and Theo. And Theo has PTSD from serving in Afghanistan. So the story is about them and his PTSD and how that impacts their family. Mm -hmm. So what was it about the topic that felt compelling to you? Well, this is, it's not a complicated question, but my answer might be a little complicated. The original version of my story did not involve PTSD at all. Sadie and Theo were married in that version, and Theo actually had Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. Mm. Uh, And I think I chose that because my doctorate's in physiology, but it's muscle physiology. And so I was writing about what I knew and understood. And at that writing conference that I referenced before, when I was thinking about, you know, microtension and macrotension and conflict, I thought, you know, I'm not sure ALS is serving the story the way it needed to. Compounded with that, uh, my sister does do research in PTSD. She's worked with veterans. And so I think I always had that in the back of my head for years. I'd heard her not giving me particulars, but just what her day-to-day life was like. And so I think I kind of brought that to the forefront and I decided, you know what, I think this one will work. And I felt as soon as I decided on PTSD, Theo kind of said, you know what, that works for me. And I said, okay, let's go. So I'm just curious, and this might 
get into the weeds too much, but why Lou Gehrig's disease didn't really work for that. Is it the difference between a physical ailment and a a psychological ailment? Or was it something just altogether different? So I've done a lot of thinking about this, and I really wasn't sure for a while. I said, I'm just going to have to trust myself and go with my gut. And then I don't know how many months into revision, I realized that with ALS, I couldn't have as much of a hopeful story because I knew what would happen. I mean, with ALS, at the end, the person's going to deteriorate and they will pass on. With PTSD, I felt that I could fashion a hopeful story and I really wanted to do that. The other thing that I've thought about a lot is that at least the way I was writing my story with ALS, I didn't give my characters much agency. They were really reactive instead of proactive, and I didn't like that. And somehow when I switched it to PTSD, I felt like my characters were just more proactive. They weren't just letting life happen to them. And for me, that was really important. Now, there are parts in the book where, of course, they're reacting to what's going on. Sadie has a mom in there that she really lets bug her and she really shouldn't. But, you know, we all have been through that. Um, But I felt it just served the story and the characters a little better. But again, that didn't really come to me until I've really thought about it once I'd started revisions. I'm sort of interested in how you were thinking about this relationship with the PTSD and mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So your background's more in like biological processes of how Mm -hmm. our body works, but Theo is dealing with a part of a body system that seems much more mysterious on how it works, which is our brain. And so you can't really see the thing that's broken in your brain like you can Mm -hmm. a torn ligament or a tumor that shouldn't be there. So how do you think about this physical mental relationship and how do you use your background in physiology in your writing generally? That's a really good question. The thing is, and I feel like this is maybe a two or three part answer, I won't try to go on, but (laughs) I totally agree with you that, you know, when you're not able to see the part that we think might need tweaking or fixing, that's difficult. And I think sometimes we are much more forgiving of someone else or even ourselves when we can see what's wrong. So I felt like it was a little bit difficult to write that. But at the same time, I believe in the mind-body connection. I'm all about um, trying to be mindful of what my mental health is like, what my emotional state are like, because I feel like it manifests in my physical self. And I'm a very open book and I do flirt with depression. I've never been diagnosed, but it runs in my family. And I have found that running for me works. But when I say running for me works, I run 25 miles a, a week plus walking. And that's what keeps me from having to you know, seek help via a therapist or even Zoloft or something. So again, mind-body connection for me is huge. And so it it was hard. Don't get me wrong. It it was definitely difficult. But for whatever reason, that brain really does draw me in. Mm -hmm. And I often say to myself, you know, if I'd gone to medical school, maybe I would have been a neurologist, especially now that my mom has Alzheimer's. I think, oh, if I knew so much more about the brain, it would be awesome. Because as a physiologist, we know a lot about all the body systems, but I don't know enough about the brain. In general, the question about how do I use my physiological background in writing, every one of my drafts, except one, has some sort of physical or mental health issue in it. And I think it's just something I've been drawn to. I think it's that science side of me. It's almost like I can't write a a full novel without having something in it that speaks to me. And physical and mental health are high on my list of priorities, not just for me or my family, but for everyone. 
Well, and I think it's, there's a lot of overlap, right? So Mm -hmm. somebody who has PTSD, I mean, they have a lot of specific issues related to their PTSD, but it manifests as anxiety, which even if you don't have PTSD, there's all different kinds of anxiety that people experience. And I think there's a willingness now to talk about these things Mm -hmm. that there wasn't when I was a teenager when I was in my twenties and thirties, it has definitely become more commonplace and people understand it better. Yes. And thankfully so for sure. I mean, I think we have a long way to go, but at least we're getting, we're making some progress. We mentioned that Theo in the story has PTSD. He's in treatment, but it doesn't always seem like he's doing what needs to be done to sort of fully get better. Or at least that was my impression as I was reading it. And I feel like that is such a relatable topic to a lot of people, you know, whether they have a spouse or a friend or a family member who they can recognize that that person person has issues they need to deal with, but they don't do it or they only do it halfway. And and as a reader, I often struggled between feeling sympathy or empathy for Theo and also sort of wanting to smack him. So <laughs> I, I'm curious about, did you experience that? And if so, was it difficult for you as a writer to try to straddle that divide? I I love that question. And you may not like this answer, but what you felt is exactly what I wanted you to feel. So without going into too many particulars, I've lived with someone who really didn't take accountability for their own mental or physical health. And I personally wavered between those exact feelings you described. So it's like when I was writing it, it was a little frustrating because I felt, oh, you know, should he be doing this? Should he not be doing this? And that's where some readers came in and gave me feedback for where I needed to pull back a little or where I needed to insert a little bit more. But it was a little frustrating. But at the end of the day, I thought to myself, well, this is how people are. Mm -hmm. And living with someone who has PTSD or another health issue, sometimes they fight about going to therapy. Sometimes they they go, but they don't talk to the person that's there. Sometimes they resist treatment altogether. And so my goal was to make an authentic character. And as hard as that authentic character might be to read, I feel like I succeeded. As you said, I mean, you know, I have had that experience where, I mean, I can't use the language that I would say, but it's either like crap or get off the pot, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like either get help because you need help or shut up about how miserable you are. I mean, Amy and I, when we were working at these questions, I said, I felt women, you know, because Theo, he's a man and it's, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of women who avoid therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. and avoid dealing with their issues. But generally, you know, it seems like if I was going to have to pick which gender has a harder time dealing with their emotions, Mm -hmm. it's typically men. And so I felt like this might be a novel that a lot of women go, oh my gosh, (laughs) you know, like I can so relate to (laughs) what's going on in this story. So to me, it seems like the issue of PTSD would be a really relevant topic for lots of people today, because with all the tours of duty that our troops have had to do, including people who are National Guard members who maybe never thought they'd have to go overseas, and they're having to do so many tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, I suspect that there are many families having to deal with just the issue that you are highlighting in your book. And I've not read any other books about PTSD from this perspective in that you get a dual perspective inside a marriage. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide to write it this way? Well, as I said before, Theo originally lived with ALS instead of PTSD. 
And it wasn't too long after I decided to make that change that, uh, and this is where the characters start talking to me. He piped up and he said, hey, Christina, I need to tell my side of the story. <laughs> and I said, you know, I think you're right. And so I was thinking about it and I thought, well, why would he be talking to me that way? And I know I sound a little bit silly when I say that, but characters really do talk to me. And I didn't think it would be fair to CEO or anyone else who's living with PTSD to only provide the story of the observer. Because Sadie... No matter how much she tried to help, she's not living his life. She's not in his shoes. She, she didn't go to Afghanistan. She doesn't have the dreams that he has. She doesn't react to the noises and all of that. And, and I thought, well, if I really want to feel like we see this through Theo's lens, um, that I make the best story that I could, then I really needed to try to tell his side of that story. And again, I go back to wanting to make this a hopeful story. And I thought, well, if someone who lives with someone who has PTSD or if someone has PTSD and they pick this up, I want them to, to feel hopeful. And by the end, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but by the end, it, it is a hopeful story and, and he is on his way to healing. And so I wanted to make sure that, that people would, would see that. So you said that your sister has worked with PTSD patients. So did you have her read the book to see if it seemed like it was true to life? Or did you do other kinds of research? I did a lot of research, which actually for me, being a trained scientist was a rabbit hole. I would just get, you know, some people get sucked into Facebook. I got sucked into the research and I had to stop looking and I would go back to all these articles. It was a lot of, I hate to say it was a lot of fun, but I really did learn a lot. Yes, she read a version of the book. I had multiple people who, one person has PTSD, not from the military. I had several people look at it who are uh, therapists. And, you know, the thing that I learned in my research with my multiple books and articles is that there are a lot of commonalities to PTSD, but at the same time, it can be very different depending on the person. So I just had to try and make it, again, the word relatable is a good one, relatable to to everybody. So they could all at least understand it, even if that wasn't their specific experience. I would suspect that a lot of book clubs could have a lot of discussions about many aspects of your novel, including the for better, for worse part of marriage vows. And so when you were workshopping this with writer friends, did these types of questions come up? They did and they didn't. And I say that because this story took so long. I had multiple versions out there. And in the earlier versions, readers said they felt that Sadie was being selfish. At that time, Sadie and Theo hadn't decided to divorce. When he was living with ALS, they were still a married couple. And I think some readers could only see her thoughts and feelings then as an emotional affair. And they just couldn't forgive a woman who would do this to a sick man, even though she never went through with her active infidelity, but she, you know, in her head that an emotional affair is still an emotional affair. So in this version, the only thing that's left really is signing the papers. And even though Theo wavers on signing those papers, he comes to realize that the marriage really is over. Um, And so he realizes, she realizes they both deserve happiness. And so when my writer friends got to this version, they understood Sadie a little bit better. And I feel like they could forgive her a little bit more. Like they understood, well, the marriage is over. It was almost this line. She didn't cross any line because the marriage is over. And so it was interesting. I appreciate all the feedback from readers. And what I want is for my readers to be happy, of course. And I don't want them to to walk away and say, well, that's not realistic or that would never happen or, you know, get a, get a feeling in the pit of their stomach, especially if they don't agree with, obviously, infidelity can be an issue. So it was a lot to balance, but those types of discussions, I think, made it a better story. Well, and I would think that in terms of making the decision to change Theo's issue from ALS to PTSD, I mean, 
even just listening to you talk and thinking about it, I would have a different reaction if he had ALS versus PTSD. And it's kind of interesting, like, I probably need to have this thought process when we're not recording, but like, that's a conversation that I think would be really fascinating for book clubs to have. Like, Mm -hmm. because I can totally see this book being one that book clubs, you know, which are generally female heavy could talk about, but you know, like, would it make a difference if a spouse had something like ALS versus PTSD? You know, I have a list of questions for book clubs and maybe with your permission, I could add that question to the list because I think it's a great one. It really does get me, even gets me thinking about it. So, Well, and it kind of goes back to the whole mental and physical mm-hmm. thing, right? Like with ALS, that's a physical thing that you know cannot be fixed, but with the mind, you can't see what's going on in there. And somehow we think that people can just snap out of things. Yeah depression or anxiety or PTSD, you know, if they just try a little harder, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be so depressed or or what have you. And so I think that brings that whole relationship into that as well, because it's okay if she leaves him, if he has a mental issue, but if he, if he's dying of ALS, then that's a completely different thing in a lot of people's minds. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Which it it shouldn't be. I, I sit there and I can logically recognize that, that they're both health issues. They're both ailments. Mm-hmm. But I guess for me, with the mind, there's this hope or this, even though we don't fully understand it, I guess I feel like there is some agency, mm-hmm. maybe, mm-hmm. where yeah. there's not for certain other things. I don't know. Yes. But yes, please do add that question. So <laughs> I will. Thank you. So I love the song Rewrite the Stars from the Greatest Showman soundtrack. But when I was reading the book, I couldn't help but think of Shakespeare's references to stars in many of his plays. So especially like in Julius Caesar, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars. So were either of those or something totally else an inspiration or a consideration as you were writing the novel? So it's funny you should ask that and not like, haha, funny, but the fault in our stars is one of my all-time favorite books. You know, John Green wrote it. And when I drive by Indianapolis, I always wave to him because that's where he lives. But yeah. I have no idea where he, I don't know where he lives, but I was like, hi, John Green. <laughs> my husband thinks I'm crazy. My kids are like, okay, mom. But every time. So The Fault in Our Stars, that's his title comes from that line in Julius Caesar. But I didn't consciously think about Julius Caesar. I wish I had. I wish I had, Carrie, but I, I didn't. But after I retitled Totally the work, take credit for it. We'll edit that part. Say, yes, that is exactly what I did. I can't. I'm so transparent. But but after, after I retitled the work and the retitle, it actually came through about the time that um, The Greatest Showman was out. So I think that song was kind of in the back of my head. But after I did retitle the book, I was like, you know, there's a whole thing. Yeah, I'm talking about stars here. And Sadie tells her friend that her life is in her own hands, just kind of like she's got to take fate into her own hands. And I thought to myself, huh, maybe I'm not that bad of a writer after all, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I think for the most part, you know, things like this happen to writers all the time where something comes out and then you go back and you go, oh, you know, that was pretty good. So we won't edit it so that I say, well, of course I did that. But (laughs) we can just stop and call ourselves geniuses and, and we'll go from there. One of my students sent me something one time and she was like, the blue shower curtain doesn't symbolize anything. It's just a blue shower curtain. And I'm like, ha ha. Yes, you're right. But, you know, I do think it's like I talk about with trains or really any type of contraption that moves people. 
you know, if you have a book and it deals with trains or vehicles or anything like that, you're taking a journey, right? It's just because that's what people think about. And so if you think about the stars, there's a lot of natural inherent symbolism that humans from the probably the beginning of time have instilled in in stars, you know? And so it's like, you can't escape it, but you're right. The blue shower curtain is just a blue shower curtain. So your book is set both in Ohio, where you currently live, and in Michigan, where you used to live. So did placing characters in those settings familiar to you ever make you nervous? Or did it make it comforting to to write? When I'm thinking about the the drafts I have sitting on my hard drive, many of them, they are set in Ohio. And I think that's because that is where I live and I'm familiar with it. And I love to write about the Midwest. I like Midwestern families. I like the values. I like the pace that life has here in the Midwest. But the other setting is actually Walloon Lake. And I didn't live there, but I have visited Walloon Lake for many years. And it's just a magical place. It is a summertime place, although if you love winter, it's a great wintertime place too. It has a beautiful lake and it just holds a special place in my heart. And, you know, I didn't sit down to write this book and say, oh, I'm going to start it in Ohio and then go to Walloon Lake. But at some point, again, those pesky characters spoke to me and they said, we're going to Walloon Lake. And I said, okay, let's go. So for me, I do think it made it a little bit easier. And this is one of my earlier, it's not my first novel that I finished, but but I think it's the third one. And I this, the setting being familiar did make a difference. You've worked as a freelance editor and a proofreader since 2012. So how did that experience doing that work help you when it came to writing your own novel? You know, I don't have an MFA. I don't have a creative writing degree. So I had to learn the craft of writing from, you know, taking courses, doing a lot of reading, getting feedback from my writing group. They've all been wonderful. But I think being an editor and proofreader helped in that I knew how to construct a decent sentence. I could look at it and say, okay, well, this is a good sentence. Where do I go from here? I still had to learn how to tell a story. I feel like those characters, they needed to come out. So I just listened to myself and I said, okay, if you can help other people, you can help yourself. And, you know, I have, of course, hired my editors to look at my own work and whatnot. But I I think it gave me a confidence to just sit and say, you know, I can do this. It might take me some time, but I can do it. And this might be completely corny, but like I totally see this metaphor of (laughs) the structure of the human body being like the structure of words and sentences. I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, when you diagram sentences, you have these little lines coming out. Is that just totally like my own little pipe dream? Or do do you see a connection between those things? I do. And I always love diagramming sentences. I don't think I'd be very good at it now, honestly, but I always have thought that. I feel like the body is a structure. A story has a structure. I mean, the body structure is a little more, I should say, a little less fluid than that of a story. Of course, we can do anything with a story. But yes, I agree with you that that structure and the, the sentences, the, the story goes, yeah, body, I see the connection. Um, other people might also think we're a little corny, but yeah. Not <laughs> <laughs> students, they would be like, what? <laughs> I don't know. I like to think that stories have bodies and that's, it, maybe it's just the way I'm wired, you know, but everything you're putting together is building a body. So there we go. You're also a senior editor of Literary Mama, which is a literary publication that's been around since 2002. You've been there since 2014. Tell us what Literary Mama is and did your work with that lead you to want to publish or help you network to make publishing a little less intimidating? I stumbled upon it actually through a a friend of mine. So I guess I didn't really stumble upon it, but um, she said, have you ever read this? And I said, 
I will do that. And then I started reading it and, and I applied for the, the volunteer position and, and they took a chance on me. I didn't really have any publishing credits at that point, but I had enthusiasm. And I remember writing in my cover letter that I just had this enthusiasm. And here we are, you know, how many years later and I'm still there. They publish works, not necessarily only by mother writers, but we have anything that has to do with parenting and mothering, grandmothers, grandfathers, people who identify as mothers. We try to give a voice to underrepresented writers as well. And it's, you know, they talk about publishing things that are raw and honest, and that's what we look for. Uh, When I got there, I started off as a profiles editor, and I stepped away from that um, a couple years ago because I was just too busy. But the profiles editors would solicit interviews from authors, and we would edit those. And so uh, it was really enjoyable. I got to meet authors, which was wonderful. That helped with networking. And so then I think, again, I got more confidence in just asking somebody for a little bit of help, like saying, hey, you know, can you tell me, you know, what's the best writing conference to go to? Or, hey, what agent did you have you talked to lately that's looking for work? And and not that they would ever recommend necessarily somebody's book and say, here, you should look at this, you know, as an agent, but um, just giving me confidence to ask different questions. Prior to joining them, I had already started my writing. But again, I really do feel like serving with those ladies who I have learned a ton from, um, I feel like I just gained a confidence that I would have never gotten. Um, sometimes having a few little title attached to your name just makes it a little bit easier to, to say, you know what, I'm, I can do this. And, uh, and somebody gives you just a little bit more respect, which is kind of sad on the one hand, but Christina Consolino, senior editor, does have a certain ring to it. So (laughs) I think what I always tell people, you know, especially those who say, well, I'm not sure I can do that. I think you have a unique point of view and anything you say that, you know, as long as it's constructive and and I always try to be positive, you're going to be giving this person feedback that they would not have gotten from anyone else. So what you have to say is worthwhile. Christina, thank you so much for telling us about Rewrite the Stars. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Christina Consolino and with Carrie. And Carrie, I'm interested to hear what book you're going to talk about today. What are you reading? I'm going to talk about a book that I finished not too long ago. It was an audiobook. It is Washington Black by Essie Edugian. The book is wonderful. The narrator is Dion Graham, and I, I loved listening to the book. It tells the story of a young boy who is a slave on a plantation in Barbados, Washington Black. And he becomes sort of like the helper for the master of the plantation's brother. And his name was Christopher and everybody called him Titch. And Titch is a scientist. He's always studying something. And so he has basically, it's a hot air balloon on this island. And so Washington Black becomes his helper. And so Titch teaches him different things about the hot air balloon. And he realizes that Washington has a natural ability to draw from observation. And his drawings are are very detailed. The story moves from Barbados and they eventually go to the United States. 
I won't get into why they go, but there's a conflict and they end up going close to the North Pole. And in this story, there's this tension between Washington and Titch. And it's very powerful, but it's also very gentle. Because you can tell that Washington looks up to Titch and sees him as a protector, but Titch is also very, I guess, standoffish. And so you see this relationship between the two. This is not a super action-packed story, right? So if you're looking for like a super plot, jumping, bum, 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 this is, is a slow burn. In the story... Titch and Washington end up splitting apart from each other and Washington ends up going to England. And then at the end of the story, he ends up finding Titch again in, I want to say Morocco. It's in a Mediterranean African. I, I can't even remember where it was, but it is in some ways this adventure story. There's science in it because when Titch is in England, he meets a young woman whose father is a scientist. And so Titch is doing these drawings from his observations. So it's got this story of science in it, but it's also the story of a young black slave boy who's sort of I'm putting this in air quotes, like he's saved by a white man from slavery, but at the same time, he's not saved. And he has this constant need to come to terms with his feelings for Titch. And so it's a very powerful story, deals very much with race that is applicable even now, you know, and and so the lens that Washington looks at life through and the lens that Titch looks through, they are looking at the exact same thing, having two totally different impressions of it. And so it's a beautiful book. I, I gave it four stars. And like I said, the audiobook is, it's very soothing to listen to. So I highly recommend it. Actually, uh, I did some professional development with a, a local nonprofit that I do consulting work with. And we had read the book, So You Want to Talk About Race. And I actually suggested that Washington Black was a really, I thought, interesting fictional account of race relations. I think we have that one on our Kindle. I'll have to give that one a try. You have been listening to a ton of audiobooks. It seems like the last five episodes we've done, you have talked about audiobooks. Yeah. Well, and now I'm starting to drive more. So I'm back in the car and I'm having more time to listen to them. So, ah, okay. Yeah. So Christina, what have you been reading? Well, I'm in this group called the 2021 Debuts, which has been wonderful. They've been a very promotional and just supportive group. And so we've been doing these swapping of books and reviews. So I, my whole, I don't know, since last November has been reading books that either have come out since January or will be coming out. And one of the books that really drew me in the most, it doesn't come out until I think it's August 10th, but it's called She Wouldn't Change a Thing by Sarah Adlaka. And the little blurb on Goodreads or Amazon says, Sliding Doors Meets Life After Life and Sarah Adlaka's story about a wife and mother who's given the chance to start over at the risk of losing everything she loves. And just that little blurb there, I thought, hmm. And then I found out that it had time travel in it. 
And I thought, oh, I love time travel. Even though I'm not a big sci-fi fan, I love time travel. I do too. Yeah. Okay. So this one might be up your alley. And what I found most fascinating, the character's name is Maria Forsman, and she's 39, and she's pregnant with her third child, and she's a psychiatrist. And she has a patient or a client come in, and they warn her. They say, don't go into your shed. And she doesn't understand why she shouldn't go into her shed. And there are a couple other things that tip her off to like something's wrong, but she didn't listen to her inner self and she goes into the shed. Well, she wakes up then back in her 17-year-old body. She doesn't understand how she got there. She just knows that she's home in Mississippi. Her parents don't understand what she's talking about because she has basically time traveled. And her husband and kids are like, honey, what is wrong with you? So come to find out that basically she can get home again. There's a way for her to get home again. But if she gets home, then there will be a tragedy that occurs. And so she basically has to make the decision. Does she go back and see those children or does she stay where she is? And as a mother myself, I thought, how do you even make that decision? You know, it sounds like it has a touch of like Sophie's choice in there. Yes, it did. I mean, this was a book that I had promised the author I'd get to it. And and I have the spreadsheet of books because I've been reading them in the order they come out. And I really wanted to get to that one because everything about it drew me in. And I thought okay, I'll just start it. And then I said, oh no, I have a book that's coming out in two weeks. Not mine, but somebody else's. I have to read that. So I have to go put that away. And I just had to stop reading it, but my my mind kept coming back to it. So I'm not going to give away anything about it because I loved it that much. It's just, it talks, you know, responsibility, complications of motherhood, just so many things in this book. And I will say uh, at the end, I cried. So. Oh, wow. Well, I've already put it on my Goodreads list. <laughs> okay, yeah, August tenth, it should be out. I would go, I would read it again, and the cover is beautiful. The cover is on Goodreads. Okay, with time travel books, it's funny because our book club just read a time travel book. I'm totally fascinated by time travel books, but they can either totally suck me in, or I spend the time going, okay, now how would this work? You know, I, I think it's almost like the more simple they make it the more I can suspend my disbelief. When it gets complicated, then I start being like, okay, there's going to be some laws of physics that are going to be applicable in this world. So I, I think the more simple, the better, I guess. My, my husband is a physicist. So um, yeah, we have conversations like that around the dinner table. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? So it's funny that you said that the book that you read, Carrie, combined adventure and science, because the one that I'm going to talk about also combines adventure and science, but in a much more fluffy way than yours did, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So I read a book called How the Penguin Saved Veronica by Hazel Pryor. And this was published last summer. And I don't really know how I heard about this one. I think it popped up on my Goodreads feed. But what appealed to me about it at first was that there was the word penguins in the title. And ever since you and I, Carrie, participated in the book club meeting at the Louisville Zoo about the book A Polar Affair by Lloyd Spencer Davis, I have been much more interested in penguins. You know, I'm generally an animal lover. And honestly, who doesn't? like a penguin. But that book, which was creative nonfiction about expeditions to Antarctica in the early 20th century and about the man who first studied penguins, I have had my radar up when I hear anything about penguins or the South Pole. So this book is fiction, but penguins do play a major role. I would call this book a cross between 
A Man Called Uva by Frederick Bachman and Where'd You Go Bernadette by Maria Simple, plus add in a good dose of cute animals in there. And so, <laughs> so if you're familiar with either of those books, A Man Called Uva is about a really crotchety old guy. So in this book, you have a really contrary senior citizen and you add a dose of an adventure to the South Pole, which you would have in Where'd You Go Bernadette. And then she meets some younger people and some animals who change their life. And there you go. You kind of have this book in a nutshell. So the story is about Veronica, who's a very cranky old lady who has lots of money and no family. She's a widow. Her parents are dead. She has no siblings. And she had one son as a teenager who was given up for adoption. So she's looked into where her son was and even he has died. So everything and everyone disappoints her or doesn't live up to her expectations, but she makes herself hard to love. But a member of her son's adoptive family reaches out to her to say that they believe that her son had a child. So Veronica tracks down this grandson named Patrick and she's also disappointed by him. When he meets her, his girlfriend has just left him and he's terribly depressed. So his apartment is a mess. He's all disheveled and he reeks of marijuana. He does not make a good impression, but honestly, neither does she. And so their first meeting does not go very well. So Veronica has been trying to decide who to leave all of her money to when she dies. Cause she's, I think she's about 86 years old. So she originally thought maybe her grandson, but after their disastrous first meeting, she's crossed him off of her list. Hmm. So she also likes to watch nature documentaries like the kind that David Attenborough does. So she sees an episode on penguins and they feature this particular penguin study that's being done on one of the islands around Antarctica. So she decides that she must visit this base to make sure that they are deserving of her money, because if she likes it, she's going to give them all of her money when she passes away. And because, as I've mentioned, she's usually disappointed in everything and everyone, you know, she must see it herself. So she writes to the scientists there and to say, I'd like to come down. I'm looking for some place to donate money. I'd like to see your operation. And they thank her for her interest, but politely ask her not to come because really <laughs> They don't have the room or facilities for an 86-year-old woman, and that makes sense, right? But she's not to be deterred, and so she goes down anyway. And this is the beginning of Veronica's adventures with the penguins and Antarctica. And she doesn't make herself very likable in Antarctica either, but she eventually bonds with a young woman there named Terry, who's part of the scientific team. And together they save a young orphan penguin chick who they name Pip. And Veronica's relationship with Pip is really an important part of the story. And I don't want to say too much more about the plot, but this is a decidedly feel-good story, which means, Carrie, you probably won't want to read it. But we, <laughs> but we find that there are reasons behind why Veronica is such an unlikable person, and there are reasons why Patrick was not as welcoming to his granny as he could have been. The book was a little predictable. I could see where the story was going, but it didn't really matter to me because I cared about the characters and I wanted things to be happy for them. But I wouldn't say that this book is complete fluff either. The author did quite a bit of research about penguins and talked with many penguin researchers. So you get quite a lot of information about penguins as well. And it definitely has an environmental bent to it. And there are some themes of motherhood and loneliness that give you something to think about. And everyone has a backstory that you have no idea about. And it's about how we should be judicious in our judging. And so I would say this was a fun read and I did give it four stars. Well, I would read it because there's a curmudgeonly old lady. 
Yes. I mean, you know, you can't go wrong with curmudgeonly old ladies because I am well on my way to being one. So <laughs> I could read that book. Yeah. I All mean, right. you, know, you might you might like it. As far as feel good books go, you might like this one. Yeah. Sometimes I do enjoy I occasionally dip my toes into feel good books. All right. Well, we're gonna take a short break and when we come back, Christina is gonna answer her top five. We are back with Christina Consolino, and we are going to ask her her top five. So having taught parts of the body for 20 years, you must have owned or used many types of skeletons. First of all, I want to know, do you tend to name them? And second of all, I want to know, do you have a favorite? And if so, what about it makes it your top skeleton? First of all, I love this question. (laughs) Um, Second of all, I'm sad to say I only have one, but that's because skeletons are really expensive. And what I really, really would like, two reallys in that, is a disarticulated skeleton, or we call them boxes of bones. You know, there's just those boxes you lift and you can put the skeleton together as you want. The one that I do have, of course, has a name and his name is Ernest, but he's 18 inches tall and he's movable and he's got everything he needs. Um, and I've often thought about getting him a partner, but I haven't done it. So maybe in another lifetime. So why do you want the box of bones? I don't know. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I I know that sounds really strange, but when I was teaching, we would have those boxes of bones and we'd hold them up. I have just this fascination with bone, the bone processes. Bone processes are where um, muscles or tendons will attach. And I just like to look at bones. I can pull a rib out of that box and look at it and just check it all out a little bit easier than you can when you have a fully connected skeleton. Hmm. Well, and they used to be made out of real skeletons. I don't know if the one that you have is real or if it's like no. plastic. Yeah, it, Maybe they don't do that anymore. I don't know. They, they do for teaching purposes, but honestly, I'd be too afraid that I'd break the bones. But if you have a chance to look at the skeletons you know, that are made of real bones, it's really fascinating. All the little nooks and crannies that we didn't really think about. Question number two, people seem to either love or hate Hallmark movies. You enjoy watching them with your youngest child. Why do you like them? And what is your top favorite movie you've seen? Well, my youngest won't admit this, but she really is a writer at heart. And so when we sit down to watch these, aside from the snuggling aspect of everything and sitting down with a, you know, a bowl of popcorn and a, and a blanket, that sort of thing, um, we just love to talk about the characterization, the plot, which you know usually is predictable, the theme, if they have it. Anything about writing, we just love to to talk about it. We also love to critique the acting, though I'm not saying I can do any better at all. So, so, you know, many times when we're watching these movies, we are laughing and that's okay. We're having a good time. My favorite, this is going to sound really pretty cliche, but it's right before Christmas, like W-R-I-T-E, right before Christmas. And that one starred Chad Michael Murray and I think her name's Tori DeVito. And um, it just had to do with this woman who, of course, went through a breakup. And then she sends out five letters to the people who have impacted her life the most. And she tries to spread joy and has the, you know, happily ever after. So So I have to admit that I am pretty ignorant about Hallmark movies because they don't tend to be the kind of thing that I enjoy. But are Hallmark movies all year long or are they just Christmas? 
I think the best ones are Christmas, to be honest with you. And sometimes they have, you know, Christmas in July or Christmas starts in like August, that sort of thing. (laughs) But yeah, I feel like they have themed movies. They have, but yeah, the best ones are at Christmas, in my opinion, but they have a whole. Okay. I just found it right before Christmas 2019. (laughs) Yep. I loved that one. I was like, we looked at each other like, that wasn't that bad. Yeah, oh, I, I should say there's something about home. I mean, you know, if it if it makes you happy, sit down and watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So. absolutely. Anyway. Question number three. So most families have a favorite game that they like to play together. What's the top game you like to play with your family and why that particular game? Well, we're not a big board game family. I don't have much tolerance for board games, but we stick to games that can be shorter or could be made shorter. So in card games, we like card games the most. So Uno is one of our favorites. We just leave the bag out on the table and sometimes we're like, okay, we can do a five minute Uno game. And sometimes they can go long, but you know, you just say, well, let's change the rules here. And I don't know if either of you have heard of BS, that card no. game. Some Mm-mm. people call it liar i've heard of that game but i and i think i might have played it at some point but i can't remember what the rules are well i can't either to be honest with you but it can get hilarious because you basically have to lie as you put your things down and depending on who you're sitting with especially oh i don't know like a giggling 11 or 12 year old you can tell they're lying and you just it it gets pretty funny so i love it that you just have a stack of uno cards sitting there in case you have like five spare minutes well i have to give credit to my older sister gina because every time she comes out she's like let's play uno so she kind of got us into it and now the stack just sits on the table oh that's awesome (laughs) so i was thinking about this the other day like I like playing games, but you kind of have to live with people who also like playing games. If you are the one person who doesn't, we've got a family of five. And then my youngest likes to play Uno. And so sometimes they'll be like, let's play Uno. Okay. I like Connect Four. I kind of like those fast Mm -hmm. games like Monopoly. I don't have that much free time. But it's harder when when the people around you are not big game lovers. So I agree. And I'm not a big game lover either. So, I mean, I'm just as happy to sit and read a book. But sometimes <laughs> I feel like I should sit and do something else with these people that I love. So. Right. Yeah, definitely. All right. Question number four. An unusual thing that you like to do is look at old maps, specifically car atlases from earlier times. So what started this interest and what is the top place you visited based on being intrigued by an old map? I love this question because it makes me sound so interesting. And I'm not that interesting. (laughs) Really. But I can tell you what started it. You know, I'm old enough to have lived through vacations where, you know, we had maps and atlases and no cell phones. And dad would have his radio station on and nothing else. So there was an atlas sitting in the back of the car. I'd open it up. And it's kind of like when you were... I don't know if either of you were like this, but when I was a young one and I would go to the bathroom and there was nothing to read, I'd just read the shampoo bottle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was me. So that's where this started. So there's really no good story behind it. But but I just, you know, and I think it intersecting lines and just following things. I don't know if you look at it again, we're seeing, I don't know, I could probably dissect it just like I dissect anything else. But in any case, that's kind of how it started. And I'm sad to say that I'm not really a big traveler. So I haven't actually gotten to anywhere based on just looking at a map and saying, I want to go there. But what I envision is someday just saying to my husband, when the kids are all gone, saying, okay, let's grab one of these. Let's just flip it open randomly. And then let's, you know, close our eyes and point to a spot 
and we're going to go there and we're not just going to go on interstates. We're going to, you know, try to follow all the little streets that, that, that lead to that place. You should do like one of those cross country driving trips. Yes. Yeah. I should. Uh, we've talked a little bit about your freelance editing, but I'm wondering, and this is your last question, what is your top type of writer to edit? And do you have a top grammatical pet peeve? <laughs> Honestly, writers who want to learn, and that's kind of a broad category, but writers who come to me and just say, you know what, I, I understand that you have an expertise that I do not. And of course, there are people who have more expertise than I do, but people who come and want to learn, those really fall into my top type. I have a client now who just says, you know what, I trust you, Christina. And when you give me feedback, I learn from that. And so even though I'm doing more of a copy edit for him, I tend to give give an explanation for why I do what I do, because he's learning as we go. So that's the, the people who are open, you don't need to be the best writer, but you need to be open to suggestion. And I feel like we work well together. That's who mm -hmm. I love to work with. I think the top, I don't know if that you'd necessarily call this a grammatical pet peeve, but the whole less versus fewer thing, <laughs> you know, especially when you're, you're sitting there listening to the radio and you're like, that should be fewer. And, I, you know, <laughs> and so I'm not saying that I don't make mistakes, of course. And lack of proper sentence punctuation gets me when I read, you know, a Forbes article and the punctuation is not right. I think, are my standards really too high? <laughs> you know? I could talk all day about grammatical pet peeves, mostly because I read a lot of middle school writing. Oh, yes. And what I do is I will read their papers. And, and the thing is, I mean, they're fine. These students are fine, but they're middle schoolers, right? And so I'll read all their papers because what I find is that they all tend to make like similar mistakes. And so rather than writing on their papers, I'll do like a mini lesson. And the thing that gets me, this is just one of my many pet peeves. And I know I do it because Amy pointed it out to me. I always start sentences when we're talking on this podcast with so, but I see students do that in their writing. They'll start with well or so. Just take those words out. Just anytime you see one, just take it out because it doesn't do anything for the sentence. I need to take my own advice and stop saying so when we're recording this podcast. Mm -hmm. We all do. We yeah. all do. Don't worry. Those are all filler words. But I mean, I do the same thing. And, you know, yeah. I think everybody just has their own filler words. We do. Yeah. It could be worse. I could say like all the time, I guess. I don't say like. I don't yeah. think. Do I say like? Maybe I do. And I'm just not aware of it. Not just a little bit, but I take them out. Okay. <laughs> Poor Amy. And being honest, that's good. <laughs> well, Christina, we are so glad that you joined us to record. And we encourage everybody to get out and look for Rewrite the Stars. So thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. This was such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. 
You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.